Welcome to Life Source Church. We are so glad you found us. We hope that you will experience God with us as you hear the preaching of the Word. Well, what kinds of things come to your mind when you hear the word game changer? Actually, two words. Something being a real game changer. Well, how many of you are Red Sox fans? Okay. Yeah, the majority. I'm not going to ask about the Yankees. <laughs> but in 2004, how long? I forget how long it had been since the Red Sox had won a World Series. Uh, how many? 86. Lots of years. And uh, they found themselves playing the New York Yankees for the American League Championship. And they uh, lost the first three games in a row. And no Major League Baseball team had ever come back from a three-game deficit, 3-3-0 three, three deficit to win. So game number four, we get down to the ninth inning and the Red Sox are losing but in the ninth inning, somehow or other, Dave Roberts gets on, and then he stole second base. Now, if you aren't a baseball fan, that may not mean much to you. But what he did is he put himself in scoring position, and a, a little bit later, uh, Bill Mueller hit a single, and it, Dave Roberts scored, tied the game. So it would look like it was all over. All of a sudden, it's not all over. Goes into extra innings, finding the 12th inning. David Ortiz hits a home run and wins the game. But Dave Roberts stealing second base, that was a game changer. That was where that game turned. And not only did it turn for that game, the Red Sox won the next four, all three, you know, all four of those games in a row against the Yankees, and then went on and four in a row against St. Louis. It was like a crazy year. But it all takes back to that game-changing play when Dave Roberts stole second base. Game changer. And of course, just a couple of months ago, the Patriots, you know, it's just, that was crazy. They were down 25 points, right? Halfway through the third quarter, but they are down 25 points. And things aren't going well. They score a touchdown, but then they miss the extra point. I mean, things are looking grim. This just is, you know, we, you know, we Patriots fans, we keep thinking, well, it could happen. It could, but, you know, we were having a hard time believing it. And, and then uh, Hightower forced a fumble. Uh, and that, that was really big. But then, you know, the game-changing play, the thing that really did it was when Edelman's catch, when the ball is scrambling, he's fallen fight, and, and, you know, this far off the ground, he manages to catch the ball. And it's like we knew then, didn't we? We knew. The, the game-changer had occurred, and the momentum shifted. And they ended up tying the game, going to overtime, and finally scoring. Game-changers. We get it. It's when, when the way things were looking before and the way things were going before is no longer the same. It has now changed and it's going different. I mean, there are game changers in medical world. You know one of the biggest game changers in the medical world is when they realized that they needed to wash their hands before they treated wounds or did surgery. You know, that just made a huge change in how people survived that stuff. Uh, the, also, um, the antibiotics. You know, how many people's lives? That was a game changer in medicine. Uh, the imaging that can now be done, that's another game changer in medicine. Just really changed from the way it was before to the way it is now. And then uh, in history, certain events in history, really big game changers. Certainly, uh, Pearl Harbor was a game changer uh, in World War II. And then um, 
The uh, JFK's assassination, the assassination of President Kennedy, that was a game changer in how things go now and even how they protect the president and what's happening there. And, and certainly, don't you agree that 9-11 was a game changer in our world? And what we experienced in doing, not necessarily for good, right? But it was a game changer, a big difference. And so we go through history and, and things and look at it, the things that were game changers. But... You know, certainly sports, we already mentioned that earlier, the so sports game changers, they, they, they don't even come, probably shouldn't even be on the same list as the kind of game changer we're talking about today. Even the medical things and historical things, the game changers, they, they pale in comparison to the game changer we're talking about here today. And that game changer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. And what I want to do today with you is to, to look at three stories uh, from the Bible, true stories that are going to help us to, to think through what does the resurrection mean and, and how should we be responding to it. So let's do this. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, that's fine. Uh, if you look under the chair there in front of you, there should be a Bible someplace. We would encourage you to follow along, and I'm going to give you page numbers so you don't have to worry about knowing what's in the Bible or not. <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew chapter 28, page 1,150. 1,150 in the Bible that's in the chairs there. Now, when we get to Matthew 28, uh, in this story, Jesus has already been crucified. He has already been put in the tomb, and he's been there. For three days. And the women who had uh, been connected with Jesus and the disciples wanted to give him a proper burial, and so they were going to go back to the tomb uh, on that first Sunday, that, that Sunday morning, and see what they could do about that. Um, they didn't know how they were going to get in, because this is a huge stone in front of it. Uh, but so this story picks up there in chapter 28 and verse number one. It says, now after the Sabbath, so Saturday being the Sabbath, this is Sunday morning. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And by the way, this, this happened before they arrived. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards, those guards who were there uh, to prevent the uh, disciples from coming and stealing the body, uh, his, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Let's just stop there for just a moment. He is risen, not just he is risen, but he is risen as he said. When Jesus was challenged at one point in his ministry while he was still on earth, challenged about, you know, well, why should we believe you, you know? Who, who are you that we should believe you? And he told them, well, here's the deal. I am going to die, and three days later I will rise again. <laughs> If somebody told you that and you didn't know anything about Christianity, they said, I'm going to die in three days from now, I'm rise again, what would you say? 
Yeah, right. And I think they said, yeah, right, too. But Jesus had said, I am And so he hinged every, the, the truth about everything related to him on whether or not I rise from the dead. So it was crucial that he rose, right? And so the angel says here, he is risen as he said. And then he invites them. He says, come, see the place where the Lord lay. Because he's not there anymore. He is risen. And, go, and then he says, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Mixed emotions. Do you think you'd have mixed emotions? Yeah. With fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. The risen Jesus meets them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. It doesn't say it, but there they will see me because I am risen from the dead. So we see the fact that Jesus based everything that he said and did. He said, the proof that what I'm telling you is true will be that I will die and I will rise. It is crucial that that happened. It had to happen or none of this is true. Luke, the, the, the um, Greek doctor who wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, right in the very beginning, he says this. Talking about Jesus. says, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. In other words, you can't get beyond these things. And, and we don't even have time today to go over what these things are, infallible proofs. But I do want to just go over just with a few of them, a highlight a few of these things, these infallible proofs, 10 of them. I just want to go over quickly. And the first one is this, that the New Testament passes every test for historical accuracy, for being authentic, written by the people who said they wrote it, and being accurate. If you apply the test that historians use, okay, the kind of test historians use to, when they find any ancient documents, they look at those uh, texts and they study them and they apply this test and that test and all kinds of things to determine. And, and the New Testament is the very best ancient document for passing those tests. No other documents even come close. So let's just set out of our mind for the moment that, that the New Testament is the Bible, Okay that it is Holy Scripture inspired. Let's just set that aside for the moment and just think of it just as an ancient text. And they say it's accurate. And what does it say about Jesus? That he rose from the dead. That's a game changer. And that affects everything else. And this one who rises from the dead, do you think we might want to listen to him? Would we want to listen to him? If you had someone say, I'm going to you know, die and rise from the dead, and they did, and you knew they did, and you knew it wasn't fake, and this is the real deal, and they say, hey, I want to explain to you a couple things about how life works. You would go, yeah, all right. I'm listening. I'm all ears here. I want to hear. I want to know. And so the New Testament just uh, validates that, and then, then Jesus 
the one who rose from the dead says he believed the Old Testament scriptures and they told us they were inspired by God. He said the New Testament was coming and that the Holy Spirit was going to inspire that. So he lays the basis for then for everything else that we believe. So the New Testament passes every test for authenticity and accuracy. And then what we find is that this was a public execution by skilled executioners. It assured his death. You know, you can't say, well, he didn't really die. They took him down before he was dead and put him away. And he was in the tomb and, and somehow or other he woke up and pushed away a several ton stone and came out. He was fine. <laughs> no way. These Romans were skilled executioners. They knew how to kill somebody. They were very efficient at it. They put him on the cross. And when they decided he wasn't dying fast enough, these people weren't dying fast enough, what they would do was go break their legs down here on the shin bones. Because when someone dies on the cross, uh, believe it or not, oftentimes what they die of is asphyxiation. They can't breathe because of this pull up. And, and then they, they, what they would do is they would try to push up on their legs, you know, against the nail and, and, and breathe, gasp for breath, and then go back down. And, but they weren't dying, so they would break the legs. Well, they got to Jesus and were going to break his legs and realized he's already dead. And just to make sure... They took a spear and jammed it up into him. And it broke uh, around the heart. And he was dead. And do you understand? These people knew how to kill somebody. So no doubt that he was dead. The third uh, infallible proof here is that government officials secured the grave with armed guards. Now see, the Jewish people in the temple, they had their temple guards and they could have put them in there. But what they did is they said, no, 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 we want to put Roman guards there. We're going to put Roman guards there, okay? And these guys, they did not mess around. The reason they didn't mess around, because if they failed at their duty, guess what happened to them? They get put to death. They take this really seriously. And so they are there guarding it. And as we saw when the angel appeared and this all happened, they just, so scared, they just went paralyzed. Because in spite of those guards, the grave was found empty. Found empty. Had to be a supernatural thing that occurred. The fifth thing is this, that many people claim to have seen Jesus alive. There's a whole list of them. In Acts chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's a list of these people. And he was even seen by over 500 people at once. Now, I'm hoping that today, when you, you know, leave here today, that you can say, we saw Walt up there in front. I especially hope this is true as if for some reason or other somebody accused me of committing a crime this morning. I'm looking for an alibi. All right? Well, if my wife tells the police, oh, no, he was with me this morning, they might go, well, yeah, right. But if all of you one by one said, no, I was there. I saw him with my own eyes. Wouldn't that become pretty powerful evidence? Well, he was seen at one time by a crowd two and a half times this size. Okay? It's settled. And these witnesses were willing to die for their claims. In fact, all of the disciples except for one died for their faith. They died for telling people Jesus is the Savior. He is risen from the dead. He is alive. None of them got rich. There was none of, you know, nowadays we'd say, well, somebody's getting rich off this. But none of them got rich. And they all were persecuted, and all but one of them were put to death for their faith. 
They were convinced. The people who knew him best who were there, they were willing to die for him. The seventh one is that Jesus' disciples were dramatically changed. So, where, you know, these women who go to the grave uh, to, to, you know, to try to give him a proper burial, where were the disciples? Do you know where they were? Hiding. They were in hiding. They were fearful. They all ran. They all took off. You know, of course, I understand that because, I mean, man, this isn't going at all the way we expected, but they were in hiding. And after they saw Jesus, everything changed. It was a game changer for them. They became bold in their witness. They stood up against the religious leaders. They stood up against the government officials and said, no, he is alive. He is alive. And they told you, you've got to stop saying that. No, he's alive. It totally changed them. How do you explain that? Except that they actually saw Jesus alive. And then Jewish believers changed their day of worship. And those Jews who began to become followers of Christ changed the day they worship. Now, you and I might not think it's that significant. But the Jewish people in, had for 1,400 years been worshiping on Saturday. That was the Sabbath. They said, God gave us this. This is the day we are to rest and not work. This is the day we are to set apart for the Lord and worshiping him. 1,400 years. And if we know anything about the Jewish people, we know that they believed in and loved their traditions. And they held to them firmly. These people were so changed and believing Jesus risen, we have seen him risen, he is alive, that they stopped having Saturday be their main day of worship and changed it to Sunday because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. That is a hugely significant piece of evidence. Number nine, although his resurrection was unexpected, it was clearly predicted. And we already told you, Jesus clearly predicted it. And there's symbols in the Old Testament that point to that as well. And finally, the the resurrection matches his miraculous life. You read about him and all the things that he did and the power of God at work in his life. You know, this shouldn't be that much of a surprise that he would have risen from the dead. And so his resurrection is crucial. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that if there's no resurrection, we're all in trouble. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says it like this, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead. So do you understand that if Jesus didn't rise, what we're doing here today is meaningless? You know, I've sinned far too many times in my life. Far too many times. And probably will more. And so have you. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then none of that stuff about who he is and what he did is true. That means you still got your own sin problem. Somebody's going to pay, and guess who that will be? It's so crucial that Jesus did 
rise from the dead. And because he did rise from the dead, you know what that's like? So here he is, he dies on the cross and the, the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 says that the Lord, the Father laid on him my sin, your sin. He put it on Christ. He dies paying the penalty for that. Well, how do we know if he paid enough? How do we know? It's because three days later, he what? He rose. That was proof that the Father had accepted that payment. That was payment in full for all of my sins and for all of your sins and for the sins of the whole world. His resurrection was proof of that. So we can be forgiven because Jesus rose from the dead, died for us and then rose. In Hebrews chapter seven, it tells us about Jesus, that therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Why? Since he, what? Always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is alive in heaven and every time someone comes and opens up their heart to him and receives Christ as savior, we're gonna talk more about that in a little bit, receives Christ as savior, he is there. He's alive, and that transaction takes place, and he saves them. Now, so what does all this resurrection stuff mean for us besides that, besides the fact that we can be saved and have a relationship with Christ? Well, it means this, that we never have to go through life alone. I don't know about you, sometimes I feel lonely. Sometimes I find myself feeling alone. But the reality is at that point in time that the Lord Jesus Christ is with me. Because back in 1975, I received Christ as Savior and he has kept this promise to me. Hebrews chapter 13 says, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so those darkest times in your life, those times when you find yourself feeling the most alone, and by the way, you can feel alone with a lot of people around you feeling alone, if you have a relationship with Christ, he is there. You are not alone. He has not forsaken you. Another thing that is true because Jesus rose from the dead is this, that, that our lives now have meaning and purpose. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, we're real familiar with this verse, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. But if Jesus is not alive, He's not making this happen, see? But he is alive. And so he works in our lives and he allows nothing to happen in our lives unless he can use it for good in some way. Do you understand what that means? That means anything that happens to you, no matter how terrible, no matter how bad, that someplace, you may or may not see it, but someplace God is going to bring good out of that. Your sufferings, your difficulties, your hurts, your pain will be meaningful. And it doesn't always feel that way. But what a powerful truth. And then because Jesus is alive, we are able to really bear anything that comes our way in life. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. Right in the first chapter, he says, that talking about his own situation, his own life. He says, we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. You don't think of the Apostle Paul that way, do you? You don't think of people in the Bible that way, but he was so beat down 
He was crushed. He really was giving up. What's the point? That's the way he was feeling. You know, when you get that news that you or someone you love has cancer, you know, stage four, it's going to be terminal. How do you deal with that? When, when you're in a relationship that you, you plan on lasting forever and somebody says, I'm out of here and walks out and, and your heart is ripped out, how do you deal with that? When someone that you love dies, you know, and everybody's going to die, and, but unexpectedly, right? It's just, and all of a sudden they're gone from your life, and, and maybe emotionally you are so heavy and you're feeling so bad, and you can't even make yourself get out of the bed in the morning, and, and all of this stuff in your life, how, how can we bear with this stuff? Well, this is where the Apostle Paul was. That's what he said. You know, we, we were, you know, burdened beyond measure, above strength, and some of those words really mean crushed down, crushed. To the point of death. But here's what he says. He continues here. 2 Corinthians 1.9. He says, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. That we should not trust in ourselves. But in God who does what? Raises the dead. You see, the fact that Jesus is alive. The fact that he is risen. It's a game changer. It changes everything. Because that tells me, no matter how bad things are, no matter how much I can't make sense of this. And by the way, when we try to make sense of what's happening in life, let me tell you how we're looking at life, right? We're looking at life like that. Because that's all we can see. Isn't it true? You can't see so much. We see this, and then we're trying to make sense of our life, and sometimes we can't. But here's what we know, whether I can make sense of it or not, or whether it's burdensome or not, guess what? It's all temporary. It's all going to pass. Because someday, this God who raised Jesus will raise us. And we will be alive with him forever. And all of this, I want to use a bad word, junk will be gone. And we won't have to deal with it anymore. Jesus is alive. We can trust in this God who raises the dead. And not only this, because Jesus was alive, that means that the kind of power, what kind of power does it take to raise somebody from the dead? What kind of power? I mean, I've done a bunch of funerals and I've never seen any of them come back to life. I think I'm kind of glad about that. It just doesn't happen. For us human beings, that's a one-way street but not to God. He has the power. He raised Jesus from the dead. And this power that can raise Jesus from the dead is available to work in our lives and to enable us to to deal with whatever we need to do and to, you know, go where we need to do and say what we need. That power is available to us. And uh, again, Paul says this in a letter to the Ephesians. The first chapter, he talks about the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's the power that is available to you to help you and to work in your life and to to make a lasting, lasting difference. Do you want to experience all of these things? Do you want to, I mean, we know, we heard them today, these are realities, but do you want to experience them in your life? 
Especially this, you know, this last one, this power of God coming into your life and changing everything. Well, here's the deal. If you really want to experience Jesus' power in your life, you must give Jesus complete control of your life. That's your choice. If you want to experience the reality of all these things that God has for you because Jesus is risen, you've got to let go of your life. Because somebody's going to be in control. And you can say, no, I'm, I'm taking care of this myself. I'm, I'm going to manage this myself. Okay, then what do you have to bring to the table? You only have what? You. Whatever you are. Whatever your, your power is. Whatever you got. But if you will let go of control, now what can you bring to the table? The power that raises people from the dead. That's the kind of power that's available, but you have to yield control. And so if you're here today and you've received Christ as Savior, let me challenge you. Yield control of your life to him. Let go of control of your life. Stop making your own decisions your own way and start saying, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And you start getting in the Bible and say, well, how am I supposed to live? What's this supposed to mean? And, and I yield control of you. And, and yeah, that'll be a struggle in the process, but I tell you what, I have never seen it. I, in my own life, I've never experienced it, and I've never seen it in any other Christian's life that they ever regretted yielding control to God. Never. Let me challenge you to do that today. So that's story number one. Let's go to story number two. Talk about the opportunity. The Gospel of John, chapter 11, page 1237 in the Bible that's under the chairs there. John chapter 11. Now in this story, Jesus was friends with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And news had come to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, very, very sick. In fact, they thought he was going to die. And by the time Jesus gets there, he has died. This, this Lazarus has already died. And so let's pick up this story in verse number 17. Again, it's page 1237, chapter 11, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother, then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And now Martha thought Jesus meant someday in the future. So Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And so here's the opportunity that we see in Jesus. By nature, we have all 
sinned against God. If you aren't sure, you know, I don't know what word, what images, the idea of the word sin conjures up in your mind. But just think of it this way, that, that God is the one who really gets to decide what's right and wrong. He's the one who decides what we should do and what we shouldn't do. He's the one that knows our hearts and says we ought to do things with the right heart attitude and all that. And every one of us have failed to do that along the way. We tend to do things our own way. We tend to do what we want to do, whether God says we ought to do it or not. We, we all have those tendencies. We have all failed to measure up to God's standard. Uh, and because of that, the Bible says that when we die, when this body dies and we leave this body behind, that the penalty has to be paid. And, and here's the problem. So what happens is if we die having sinned against God, and we have all done that, so we're all in this boat. When we die and we find ourselves before God, we will be guilty before God, uh, and we will be judged. And that judgment is an eternity of God's judgment in hell. That is the judgment. And, and it's an eternity. You know why? Because we could never pay it back. We can never pay enough to make it right. It's impossible. All right? But Jesus is saying here, no, if you will believe in me, that won't be your destiny. That's a spiritual death that lasts forever. The Bible calls it the second death. No, but if you will believe in me, instead of experiencing that death, that second death, you will live. You will be alive with me. And see what happened is Jesus came into the world, died on the cross, which was, you know, Good Friday, dies on the cross, the Bible tells us as he died that God the Father took all of the penalty for my sins, all the penalty for your sins, the penalty for everybody's sins in the whole world, everyone who has ever lived or will live. Jesus died paying that penalty in full and rose, rose again from the dead. And the idea is if we will acknowledge that, wow, I have sinned against God. I know that. I get that. I understand that if I stand in judgment before him, I'm guilty. I've done it. There's no, no escape from this. But, you know, I do believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. I, I don't understand all that, but I believe it. And I believe he died for my sins and rose again. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to believe in him. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus to be my Savior to save me from that penalty. This is what the, the Christians you know, in the Bible words are we get saved because we trust a Savior. Uh, we're converted. It's that time in life when we go from where we are trying to take care of all this stuff, going to be more religious, do more good works. No, 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 you realize I can't. And all I'm going to do is I am going to now trust. Jesus, I'm making this once-in-a-lifetime decision. I am trusting Christ. And this idea of trust, believing the way the Bible talks about two ideas here. One is knowing something, okay? It's knowing these truths that I just talked about, and then it's the trust of saying, okay, I am going to trust that for me. And when we believe like that, we become alive. He gives us life so that when this body stops living, and the Bible describes this body like a tent that sometime finally gets folded up and put away. And when this body dies, that when, if we've trusted Christ, we go on living with him. That's good news. 
And so not only that, because every sin has been forgiven and he actually comes and lives inside of us here. And we have his life now so that we are alive and we will just go on living when this body stops. We will not experience eternal judgment. But the key, Jesus said, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection of life, that I'm the one that you must trust in? And so understand this. To benefit from Jesus' resurrection, you must receive Jesus as Savior. I mean, you can be here today and say, okay, I guess he rose from the dead. Maybe he did. Yeah, okay, it makes sense. But unless you receive Jesus as Savior, none of this matters. It isn't going to work. You have to make a decision, and that's our third story. So let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, page 1277. The Apostle Paul, and when I say the Apostle Paul, I haven't explained who he is earlier, but he was a man who came to know that Jesus was the Savior, and God gave him a very special role of going around the world telling people about this. Well, here in Acts chapter 17, he found himself in Athens, Greece, and uh, in a place called the Oropagus. And the Oropagus was a place, sort of like a marketplace, but it was more than that. It was a marketplace of ideas and religious belief. And there were all sorts of statues and idols, everything, everywhere. There was, there was, all the gods of the world were represented here. And then, start in verse 22. Paul gets an opportunity to talk to the leaders of the city there. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. They wanted to cover themselves. What if we missed one? Well, let's put up an altar to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Let me tell you about this God that you don't know yet. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he is made from one blood, Every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising, like all these other statues and idols you have here. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands, listen, he commands all men everywhere to repent. In other words, you need to turn away from these false religions to the true God. You need to turn away from your own approach to, to life, to God's approach to life. Verse 31, because he, this God, has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So who's Paul talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's right, Jesus rose from the dead. And he's saying there is a judgment. You will be judged by a righteous judge and this judge, God has 
made clear that he is worthy of making the judgment because he did what? He raised him from the dead. Now, what's the response? Verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So here's the reality. You have heard today that Jesus rose from the dead. And you have a response to make. And you can respond and say, oh, I don't believe that stuff. That's crazy. Nobody rises. You can do that. They did that here, didn't they? But no, making that decision and walking away from the Lord and not ever receiving him as Savior means that when you die, you will face judgment and it will be eternal in hell apart from God. The other choice you can make here is to say, you know, I just don't know. I'm not sure about this yet. Let me think about it some more. Get, let's get back together about this. And, you know, I understand that. But what I want to challenge you today is to make sure, ask yourself, why am I saying I want to wait? You know, you have no guarantee you make it home today. We don't, right? Something could, you could get killed on the way home today. We have no guarantees of another breath. And if you say, well, let me wait. Let me think about that. Man, your life could come to an end and it will be over and you will be in hell for all eternity. The other choice is that you can, like these did, they believed. They said, okay, I believe and receive Christ as Savior. And you know, I think there may be some of you here today who say, I want to do that. I do want to receive Christ as Savior and I want to help you with that decision. Let's all bow our heads and you know, close your eyes. Just don't anybody be looking around. Just a moment. If you're wanting to say, I want to believe, I do believe, I want to receive Christ as Savior, then just a moment I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And what I want you to do is just silently in your heart and mind pray this to God. Mean it from your heart. He knows what you're saying. He doesn't have to hear it out loud. But you pray along to God something like this. And you put it in your own words if you want. But say something like this to God right now. Pray with me. Say, God... I know that I have sinned. And I know that my sins will send me to hell. But I believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And, and I believe that he died for my sins and that he rose again from the dead. And I, I, I the best I know how, God, Right now, I'm going to receive Christ as my Savior. I do receive Christ as my Savior. I accept his payment for the penalty for my sins. Amen. Heads bowed, eyes closed still. Just a moment, I'm going to ask you if you prayed that prayer with me. Just to, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and indicate that to me so that I can pray for you. All right? And also give you an opportunity to, to take like a first response to saying, yes, I have believed and received Christ as Savior. So with no one looking around except me, if you just prayed with me to receive Christ as Savior, would you just raise your hand up? Yes, hold, I see that. Hold those hands up, please. Keep them up. All right, yes, I see those. Anybody else? Others? 
All right, amen. Father, thank you for those who just pray to receive your son as Savior. I do pray you'll make it very real to them. I pray, Lord, even the response of showing their hands that they would um, move forward on this and, and uh, connect with us and let us help them to understand that decision and to grow in it. Thank you that your son rose from the dead and all that that means in our lives after we receive Christ as Savior. And I pray that we will go out of here today purposefully having yielded control of our lives so that we might experience the reality of the risen Jesus in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.